Well, good morning, everyone. It is good to see all of you here, especially in the summer. And uh, would you rig my podium here? I don't know what it's doing. But anyway, um, yeah, we're, we're uh, glad you're here. I'm going to invite you to bow with me before we step into the scriptures. Well, Father, thank you for the power of the gospel, and regardless of where we are at in the world, it is the response that you have to the brokenness and sinfulness of humanity. Father, thank you that we can be involved in that, not only with our neighbors across the street, but with those who are around the world, and we just ask you continue to fire within us by your spirit uh, this passion to, to be on mission, to continue to keep the gospel as the main thing that we're doing, and that as we continue to grow and learn from your word and from the working of your spirit in us, that you will take us to new heights and new adventures and new explorations of how we can communicate that gospel to a lost world. We ask that you will continue to help us shed sort of the idols of our own life and the obstacles that can so easily entangle us and that we might run this race well. Uh, Thank you for the opportunity this morning to continue to peek into the life of Jesus and to allow him to speak to us as he touched people's lives thousands of years ago. We ask that you might continue to open our heart up to not just information, but the transforming work of the Spirit of God, and we just entrust our time to you as we continue through this journey through Mark, and we ask you this in Christ's name, amen. Mark chapter 2, verse 1 says this, And when he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so there was no room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men, and when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, He said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak this way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven? or to say, rise up and take up your bed and walk. But that you might know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise up, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose up immediately, picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were amazed and glorified God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. You know, one of the things that's remarkable about Jesus, especially in this story, is that there is so many things that are unspoken that are said. Uh, Jesus doesn't hear a word from the paralytic, and we don't have them having any conversation at all, although we might speculate that they interacted somewhat, but there's nothing recorded that the paralytic or the four men who brought him said anything. We are not told that the scribes actually said anything, that they pondered things in their heart, and Jesus kind of determined in his own spirit what they had been thinking and what the issues might be as he saw their looks and, and uh, their, their kind of frowns and their questioning looks about the statements he was making. Uh, in fact, there's very little said in the whole dialogue other than what Jesus says, and yet there seems to be a profound message being spoken very loudly in terms of what Jesus can do and not do. 
And as we work through this, I want to just sort of step through some of the pieces of this and try to challenge our own thinking about the idea of Jesus' ministry and how that needs to be reflected in our own lives. Because what we discover is that Jesus comes forth and he is, we are discovering in this healing of the paralytic that Jesus has more than just the authority to heal a broken body, but he has the authority to do something that even the scribes understand only God ultimately has the right to do, and that is to forgive sins. I, I don't know where you're at in your own journey in life, but there is always this sense that we need God uh, at times when we're broken and we're dysfunctional, that we feel vulnerable and we feel helpless and we want God to rescue us. The danger in that, of course, is that we want God more only for the fact of what he can do for us, not for what we can surrender to him. And in this journey, that's interesting that when he comes back to Capernaum, we have this typical popularity thing that Jesus is going through, and that is he's probably back at Simon's house, and he, word gets out that Jesus is back in town because he had kind of isolated himself in the desert regions because of people being touched by the power of God had spread the news so far and wide that they had been changed by Jesus that people were flocking to him. And he couldn't walk into any town without becoming a celebrity that people would just flock to. And yet Jesus' concern, as you all the way have you seen already in the text of Mark, is that he doesn't want people to flock to him just for him to change their circumstances. He wants to change their heart. He wants to change their whole disposition and worldview about how they're living life. And yet, as we move through this, we discover that as he's at the house, the crowds are there, and it makes a point to say that the house is so jammed full of people, you're right up to the doorway that you just can't get through it. You'd literally have to mow people over to try to get into there, and even then it would be difficult. Uh, wouldn't call this a mosh pit at a concert, but it's pretty, it's pretty packed in terms of what's going on. So Jesus is clearly popular. Even some of the scribes have gathered in there and are sitting and listening to Jesus to figure out who this person is. And then in the middle of all this, probably unseen to most of the people in the house, in comes in the narrative these four men carrying a paralytic friend. And it's interesting to notice that this paralytic, we're not told how he got that way. We don't know if it's an accident. We don't know if it's a disease. We don't know if it's afflicted, an affliction caused by demons or spirits or anything like that. All we know is that he's a paralytic. One of the things that's intriguing about this is that we never find out what his name is. He's always referred to as the paralytic. And it forces me to stop for a minute, and it's interesting that even in the story, when Jesus responds, the Matthew, or Mark seems to indicate that when Jesus responds, he talks to the paralytic. We don't know his name. And I'm intrigued by the fact that often that's what happens to people, is that we often stereotype people and define them by the problems that they're carrying. He's referred to as just the paralytic. We refer to people as the drug addict or the person who has anger problems. It's so easy to define people and their identity by what their problem is. And this individual is not even coming on his own accord, he's coming willingly, but he's recruited four friends to get him in front of Jesus. I don't know about you, but even through this narrative, I, I kept thinking, I wonder if people found out what my problems are, 
that they would define me by that. Most of you are really kind enough to define me more by positive things. Usually when people greet me, they don't call me, hey, idiot, or something like that, or uh, whatever it happens to be. I usually get Pastor Brad, uh, which always is a bit odd to me because I always feel like if I know their occupation to say, well, hi, engineer Tom, or whatever. <laughs> Although that seems even weirder than that, but anyway, it's kind of like, but, but the idea is, is that we often define people either positively by how they function and how they act, or we often define people by their problems. And even if we don't call them that, we often think that, oh, here's the person that we want to talk to, and our guard goes up because we often have stereotypes about how they act or behave or how they treat people. Sometimes it's illegitimate because that's the way people act. And people get reputations for the way they are. And yet the danger is, is that it's very easy for us to limit who people are and what God can do in their life by outward appearance and define problems. I don't know how much you do that in your life, but sometimes we even do that with family. We do it with some of our friends. You know, I like hanging out with those people, but, you know, we want to make sure we have something scheduled at the end of the day to make sure that we can get us an escape. One of the things that uh, I think is often a, a struggle is that it would be really difficult if everyone defined everybody by their own afflictions. I have kind of a, a fun picture. It's very blurry. It's an old one that I had from college, but I wanted to show it to you because to me it was very much in keeping with the idea that these four friends had the courage to bring a friend who was paralyzed to get them to Jesus. When I was back in Bible college back in 1982, we had a, a class retreat, and we happened to, it's in Saskatchewan um, in Alberta, and Saskatchewan is about as flat as, I don't know, What's your flattest state around here? Oh, it's Minnesota, maybe. I don't know, but anyway. No mountains, no hills, no nothing, although we happened to go to a place that had probably a hill that was like, I don't know, Buck Hill or something. It's what you call a ski slope, we would call kind of a mosquito bite. It's just kind of one of those things. But the class retreat came there, and they wanted to do a devotion, so they wanted everyone to go up to the top of this hill that was two or 300 feet high, and it had a grade on it that was 30% or something. And everybody went up the hill and got up there, and there was about four or five of us kind of guys figuring out how to get the last things up there for the, for the devotional. And we realized that there was a gal sitting in one of the vans, and she couldn't go up because she had had uh, some kind of accident. She had a cast on her arm. She had some kind of back surgery that she was really uh, limited with, and she had a cast on her leg. And it suddenly occurred to us that she's going to be the only one left down here while we're up doing our thing. And so we gathered the guys together and said, what do you think if we carried her up there? And we went over and we said, look, we know this may not work because we don't want to hurt you. We don't want to stumble or trip or anything like that. And so, but would you want to go up with us? She didn't even hesitate. She said, yeah, that'd be great. So the five of us took turns carrying her up the hill. And believe me, it, even for college students, this was no picnic. This took a little bit of work. We were most afraid of tripping and stumbling, but we would rotate in and out, carrying her up to the top, and when we got to the top, it was really probably almost a 45-degree grade. And my buddy came in beside me. He says, should we switch? And I said, I don't know. I think we, that, it's a little precarious. So he slid in beside me, and we carried her to the top. And this is the picture that they took and put in the yearly uh, annual. 
The beauty of it was that it was probably one of the greatest lessons we learned, just the five of us, about how to consider people who are in, in a situation where they're way more vulnerable than the rest of us. And uh, of course, the, the whole theme of that song in, up in the top corner was the whole idea of he's my brother. You know, you're not too hard to carry, we're willing to do it. The thing that we were afraid of is that she'd say no. Because you know how people are, I don't want to look vulnerable, I don't want to look like I need anybody, and yet she was really gracious about the idea of saying, I want to be part of that community, I want to be part of the class, and so she let us carry her up there. I won't tell you who's who in that picture, because those are pretty old pictures, but it's, it's kind of the, the thing that was going on. But the beauty of it is, is that we learned that every one of us at times finds ourselves in vulnerable positions in life. Every one of us finds ourselves facing limitations and struggles in our life that we can't overcome by ourselves. And the reality of this is that every one of us needs some friends every once in a while to come alongside of us because of their friendship and their faith to carry us through moments in life that we just can't handle on our own. And that by itself is a profound lesson in this whole thing. It's one of the most unique stories in all of the Gospels where we have not just an individual chasing Jesus down because of their own need, because the the Gospels are full of individuals who chase Jesus. The crowds are there, but this is one of the few stories where individuals rally together to bring somebody to get them face-to-face in front of Jesus. You know, it's part of what the community of, of the church is supposed to be like. That's why relationships are so important. That's why we advocate community groups, because whether it's a serious crisis or we're making transitions in our life, one of the great powers of community is that we can carry one another once in a while. And and so these particular individuals are willing to take the time to help their friend. These four individuals stepped up to do what he could not do for himself. I don't know if you've heard the old little phrase and adage that we've tossed around, at least they did when I was growing up, and that is, God will never allow anything to happen to you that you can't handle. I don't know where they get that. I couldn't find that in the scriptures anywhere. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 1, Paul makes a statement that says, we want you to not be unaware of the afflictions that we've gone through, that they were so overwhelming they went beyond our strength to handle them. And so, when it comes to temptation, 1 Corinthians 10 There are things that God will always provide a way of escape when facing temptation, but it doesn't mean we won't face circumstances that are more than what we can handle. And yet what we tend to teach ourselves in Christianity, in American Christianity, really defaults back to this thing is, well, God will never allow anything to me that if I'm really spiritual and have faith that I can't handle it on my own. And there are lots of Christians who are walking around on their own who are basically have a a spiritual and emotional disability because they keep thinking if they're really spiritual, they have to be able to handle it on their own. And they're suffering inside and they're struggling because they don't want anyone else to find out about their weakness. They don't want to appear vulnerable They feel ashamed because they're not spiritual enough or have the faith to handle it. And by the way, there are groups out there that basically advocate that, that if you can't handle it, then it's obviously you lack faith because we ought to have the faith that ought to be able to tell God what to do and he will fix it if we have the right faith. 
And so there is a huge problem even in terms of how we shape our faith and what it looks like and what's really spiritual and what isn't. And yet these individuals know that they can't fix their friend's problem because they're not adequate, but they can carry him to a point where they get him in front of the one person who can. And if you think about it, that's a lot about ministry. That's a lot about what Jesus did and, and what we can learn is that we're like the four friends carrying each other. That there's oftentimes people don't help because they go, well, I don't know how to fix it. I, I have no idea how to, to, to solve your problem, so therefore I'm gonna back off because I don't wanna fail and give you false hopes. But these four friends at least have the wisdom and the faith to know we can't solve your problem, but we can get you in front of the person who can. And one of the attitudes that I think we have to keep on cultivating within our own heart and mind is that even though you and I are very limited on how we can respond and fix the problems that are of people around us, much less our own issues, we can help carry one another to the person who can solve our problems. And that person is Jesus. And yet sometimes our faith isn't big enough to believe that Jesus is big enough to handle our problems. So often we don't even pray about the very needs that someone has because, well, this is just the way it's gonna be. We don't have the confidence that God is going to not let them down. And we think that we're gonna disappoint God or we're gonna let God down or fail our friends because we can't promise something that we know we can't, don't have the resources in and of ourselves to fix it. But these individuals were willing to take the chance. And I wanna suggest to you that we have to learn to have the kind of friendships and the kind of faith that's willing to take the risks to be alongside people in their journey even when we know we can't fix their problem. And unless they get in front of Jesus, they may never get fixed. But that's taking a risk. It might be the danger of giving false hope because we actually believe Jesus can respond to this. But what if he doesn't? And every day we're faced not only with our own weaknesses and inadequacies and sometimes our own disabilities, but we're facing that with people around us all the time. And yet the one group in the entire world that ought to have the greatest confidence to be transparent and, and, and be okay with sharing the things that I can't handle ought to be the Christian community, and yet it's one of the greatest obstacles to us being honest with one another. Because we're so afraid that we're going to look less faithful or less spiritual because there's things that happen in our life that we're not handling really well. That we're sort of crushed under the weight of what's afflicting us, whatever it might be. And so for the paralytic, his friends come and they're persistent. They get to the house and it's kind of like, wow, like what's going on in here? We know Jesus is here, we didn't expect this. Literally, if they were gonna try to plow through the front door, it just would be impossible. They would probably injure people trying to get in there because that literally means the room was uncontaining the number of people. So they get this harebrained idea that's like, well, let's just go up and take the roof off. Like, really? Who comes up with that idea? But it shows the persistence of this friend's faith to saying, listen, we're not just gonna give up because everybody else has Jesus' attention. You know, it would have been easy, I think, for them to go, look, Jesus is busy, he's teaching, what could be more important than teaching the word? 
because that's what the text tells us he was doing. He was preaching and teaching the word, and he's got the, the scribes in there, so maybe he can fix them. Let's not bother with him. We'll find another time. But they don't do that. They're, they're absolutely persistent in this, and so they find their way up onto the roof, and they unroof the roof. They didn't have roofs like ours. They were probably made of earth and other kinds of things, but they went up there and started unearthing or unroofing the roof. And they took these extreme measures because their full commitment was, we've got to get our friend in front of Jesus. And I will suggest to you that sometimes one of the true marks of friendship and genuine faith is a willingness to not give up on the people around us who are struggling the most, can't handle their problems, keep failing, and can't overcome it, and being in the journey with them until we can get them in front of Jesus. Sometimes the most difficult people to get in front of Jesus are other Christians. Because one of our great maladies is that because we think we have to handle everything on our own, we refuse to allow other people to help us. We fail to allow other people to see our weaknesses and what we're struggling with. And so we don't ask for help, because I'll just endure it. The famous banner for introverts is, I I just don't want to bother anybody. And so we suffer in silence because we're either too scared or too fearful, too proud or too arrogant to ask for help. And so nobody helps us carry us before Jesus, even if it's in prayer. We will always find ourselves in situations where we're unable or unwilling to get past our stuff. We will always need other people around us at different times in our life to carry us. And I I would even beg the question to say, that's part of the reason why we have disciple making. That's part of the reason we have community groups. Because every one of us have enough maladies in our own life that we constantly need to be carried by people in prayer, in encouragement, to be challenged, to allow people to speak into our life, to give us correction, to give us perspective, to help us to get our eyes back on Jesus when we wander away. And yet you and I know than in our microwave instant expectation society that we have in. It's like, well, I tried once, didn't work, so I got something else to do. And yet, there are remarkable people around you that I know that have hung in with family and friends and other people who are struggling and they've done it for years. Because they care more about getting their family or friend in front of Jesus as much as they can, whether it's sharing the gospel or praying for them, Because you know that sometimes we're our own worst enemy. The greatest problem sometimes we have is is our own mind believing the lies about that I'm worthless and I'm not worth it and I'm not good enough and I don't want to bother Jesus with my stuff because there's too many other important people to deal with. So true friends of like-minded faith know how critical it is to help others get in front of Jesus. You know, one of the things that happened here a couple of, a week or so ago was the overturning of Roe versus Wade, at least on a national legal level. First thing that came to mind is, I wonder if we as Christians are willing to step up and learn what it means to step into adoption for, to meet a need that's probably going to be growing. 
I wonder when we think about our vision frame, whether we've got enough people that want to continue to be generous and do good works for the lives of people around them so that they might carry them before the person of Jesus. The worst thing we can do is isolate ourselves because the world is crumbling and it's terrifying and we're afraid of it and we don't know what's gonna happen next and there's so much uncertainty in terms of politics and economics that it's probably better for us to withdraw and hide rather than step into it. But even in terms of the gospel, one of the most critical things that we can do is keep stepping alongside people who are living in the dark and hang with them so that somehow we can get them in front of Jesus. I was up at Snap Fitness the other day working out and I went on on Saturday morning and there was one buddy in there that I see once in a while and we talk. And uh, we started chatting for a minute and and we were the only two in the room and he goes, wow, it's amazing that nobody's in here. And so I did my normal kind of retort and I said, well, I'm here. And and he he started laughing. And I said, well, I said, now you know what my wife has to put up with is these kind of smart remarks. I said, she calls, instead of calling me Brad, she calls me Bratley. And he started laughing and chuckling. And then I just threw this comment out to see if he would respond to it. I said, but that's okay, I know Jesus and he helps me feel better. And he kind of looked at me and kind of went back to his workout and that was about it. (laughs) So he didn't bite on it, but you know, it was kind of one of those things you try to do. And the question is, is are we looking around our world to see if we can step beside somebody in their journey and find some way to get them in front of Jesus? Because you and I both know we can get life so busy we haven't got time for anybody other than just surviving ourselves. And so as we move through this process, these men get up there, and this couldn't have been a five-minute job. They were up there working away. They must have had dirt and stuff falling down there, but they get this roof up and they lower this paralytic before Jesus, And then Jesus makes this incredible declaration that seems very odd to us. That that he says, son, your sins are forgiven. He doesn't say God forgives your sins, he just says your sins are forgiven. And the scribes are sitting there going like, dude, what are you saying? You don't have a right to say that, that's blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Who are you to do this? But one of the things I think is always interesting is that Jesus, I don't know anywhere in the scriptures where if someone was demonstrating some faith to seek after Christ, that he didn't take advantage of the opportunity. There's lots of people that wanted his attention that he ignored, or he didn't give a lot of time to, but he never turned away anybody who he saw an element of faith in seeking him out, regardless of what it was. And faith is that sort of synchronon essential element that without it, we don't know how to get in front of Jesus. You know, we live in this world that everybody keeps thinking that we're pretty good by, on our own. That if we're basically good and God loves us, that when we finish our life, I'm gonna go to a better place and I'll get to go to heaven. The scriptures are absolutely against that idea. In fact, the the basic statement is there isn't a single human being alive that's gonna be good enough on their own to get into the presence of God. That every single human being that we know has to get in front of Jesus and surrender to God through faith in Jesus if they're ever going to be healed of the affliction of our sin and forgiven that sin so that we have the right to stand before God. 
And the nature of faith, in one sense, at least in this context, is that it's understanding Christ's sufficiency in the face of our inadequacy and our vulnerabilities. And as long as a person thinks that they're okay the way they are and they don't need anything, they'll never come to faith in Jesus. They'll never surrender to him because they think they're sufficiently put together. I I can handle life. I can do this. And because we're created in the image of God, we have the capacity to do amazing accomplishments from technology to economics to whatever it happens to be. God has wired us with a sense of brilliance that reflects his image. So it doesn't matter whether it's physics or science or whatever it happens to be, we get to discover the intricacy and the majesty of all that God has created. And yet, we tend to think, hey, this is our accomplishment. Let me remind you that when it comes to having a right standing with God, Romans 3.27, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. You can't earn your way to heaven. You can't be good enough by on your own. There is no way other than if faith is involved in trusting Jesus. And so Jesus makes this declaration to forgive. And this almost seems like a rude statement. They lower a paralytic and he goes, well, your sins are forgiven. You ever been accused as a Christian of being so heavenly minded you're no earthly good? That almost sort of has that feel to it here. Here's a guy, someone who has a deep physical need, lowers him in front of Jesus, and he starts spiritualizing stuff. He goes, uh, my son, your sins are forgiven. Yeah, that's great, I'm paralyzed. I'm here for a different reason than that. Christians get accused of that all the time, and sometimes we've got a lot of pushback from people, like, oh, you guys, all you care about is people trusting Jesus, but I've got real needs. And Jesus is going to demonstrate here that he cares about both. But the temporal, physical need of the the, the paralytic here really gives Jesus an opportunity to say there's a deeper, much deeper, more serious need in all of our lives than just our physical circumstances and limitations. And so when Jesus discerns the attitude of the scribes, he, he recognizes their skepticism. I think we all know what skepticism is. We've been sort of born and bred on it, from salespeople to spam calls to whatever. We're, we're, we, skepticism is kind of our first lead, and I suspect that if the scribes didn't do this, there might be others in this group that would have the same skepticism. But they happen to question Jesus' truth claim about the idea that he has the right to forgive sins. And their accusation in their hearts is that he's blaspheming. Now, I don't know how Mark figured this out, whether there was more conversations that went around it or whatever. Uh, There's a lot of analytics that go into looking at Mark from one commentator to the next in terms of what he actually put in here. But you remember, at least in terms of the dialogue, Jesus kind of figured this out just by watching their expressions. But these seem extremely specific. And the last one is, he's making a claim only God can make. Now, how much Jesus knew of that, we don't know, but it's, it, it stirs this thing when Jesus makes this statement that he has the right to forgive sins. And so he's going to deal with the, the, the skepticism and this almost sarcasm of the scribes, even though it doesn't seem to be expressed here. And he says to them, why are you questioning what I'm doing? 
what, what is it, what's easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk? That's, a, that's an intriguing thing. We could spend a long time thinking about that. We won't do it this morning, but it's fascinating to think about what he's doing here. If I think about it, the easiest thing for Jesus to say is make this truth claim. Your sins are forgiven. Because even though the scribes have an opinion that only God can do it, how do you prove that right or wrong? It's an invisible claim that, how do you test for it? Well, we can just work from the assumption that only God can do it, so therefore you don't, in my opinion, look like God, so obviously you're wrong. But you got people all over the place making all kinds of philosophical and religious claims today, and the question is, okay, well, how do you measure whether that's right or not? Well, obviously we have God's word, and that becomes, but even when you dive in there, you get people with lots of different opinions about it. But as they put this together, Jesus is going to speak back to him, and he's going, well, okay, what's easier? Well, from a human perspective, it would be easier to make the invisible truth claim because, hey, we'll figure out real quick if you tell him to rise up and walk. That one's pretty measurable. We can tell right away whether you're just, like, spamming us or whatever because if he doesn't get up and walk, then you're a fake. Now, obviously, from, the, from God's perspective... Doesn't matter. Either one is as simple as the other. Because God's the creator of all things. And for Christ's perspective, he's got the obstacles of how people perceive him, but he's going to demonstrate very clearly that it really doesn't matter from his perspective because he is God's representative, the Son of Man, and he's been given the authority to forgive sins, and he's going to push it right in their face. And so Jesus ends up taking on their skepticism. By the way, if you're going to be in the body of Christ and you're going to do ministry, I can guarantee you you're going to deal with skepticism. I've been in the ministry for over 30 years and I've dealt with bucket loads of skepticism. I've had lots of people question whether I'm a real leader. I've had people question my integrity. I've had people question whether I have any clue what I know what I'm doing, or I'm not doing the right things, and I'm certainly not doing them in the right way. I have people who've criticized the way I preach. I've had people criticize the way I disciple people. I've had people criticize. I've had skepticism, and I know that if you're in ministry at all, whether it's formal professional ministry as a pastor or some other position in a church or a parachurch organization, or whether you're just leading a ministry, you're gonna deal with skepticism. Because people will always have a way at times to make themselves feel better by criticizing what you're doing. And one of the things we have to learn to do is trust Jesus over the opinions of people. It may sound like a simple thing, but I've seen so many pastors drop out of ministry because of the barrage of skepticism and complaints and criticism because you don't know what you're saying, you're not saying the right things, you're not focusing on the right topics, you don't know what you're doing, you're not a good leader, and they get so overwhelmed by the reality of all this skepticism that they just say it's way easier just to step out of this. Which frankly is a massive embarrassment to the Church of Christ. But if you've been in ministry at all, I'm sure you've felt it. Now there's times to take it on. Jesus takes it on, but he doesn't get into a debate with these guys. What he simply says, 
to the paralytic is, well, he says to the scribes first, he says, I want you to absolutely know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I have the authority to forgive sins. Stand up and walk. And this paralytic, who that doesn't seem to be the question in anybody's eyes, immediately gets up, grabs his stuff. I don't know how he gets out of the house with the crowd. I suspect he's got so much energy busting through him, he just sort of pushed his way through and they just parted the waters when he left. And they were all absolutely stunned at the reality of the things that they were looking at. And I, I want to simply finish by saying this. You know, there's lots of people in our world that have skepticism about Christianity and about Christians for maybe lots of different reasons. And sometimes those things are warranted. It's the perfect excuse for us not to step into their lives because they're just sheer skeptics. But I also want to suggest to you that for you and I, we can claim to be Christians, but the greatest evidence of that is the fruitfulness of our life because that becomes an undeniable reality. I used to be an angry person and now I have patience because of the peace of Christ and his grace is changing the nature of who I am so that now I've gone from being an angry person to a person of peace. That's kind of undeniable. And we can make all the truth claims in the world that I know Jesus and love Jesus, but the reality is, is that there has to be a change in the way we live. Not a different tone in how we criticize others, but a change in who I am and the way I'm living. And the paralytic discovered that in spades is all of a sudden now he's a person that was overcome by all the circumstances and now he is a changed person. Not just because Jesus healed him, but he discovered at least in knowledge the reality that his deepest need is that he needed a God to forgive him of his sins so he could be right with him. I don't know what you would ask Jesus if he stood in front of you this morning and said, what is it that you'd like me to do for you, what you would say? I don't doubt that some of you would say, listen, I've got this horrible marriage and I need you to fix it. <laughs> I could see Jesus going, you sure you want me to do that, right? Because I know you, what you want me to do might be a little different than what I'm going to do. It might be health issues. Very few people that inspire me more uh, than Tammy Johnson. If you don't know her, she's confined to a wheelchair and has been there for decades. I remember bringing her in front of her, brought her to a youth group to speak to the youth group one time here. And one of the questions I asked her to respond to is, if you could go back and change it, would you do that? And she'd say, absolutely not. And so the kids go, why? Why would you not go back and change that? Because it was through her paralysis that she met Todd, and that's how she came to Christ. And she won't trade that for anything. Because she knows that regardless of what imprisons her now physically she's going to be free of someday but if she didn't come to know Christ there's no way to get free from that in eternity
Now, I know you may be a person who says, I need God to fix this person in my life. I, I, I need you, God, to fix these circumstances. And we can see here that God fixed his circumstances and why he doesn't do it in every person's play, situation, I don't know. And maybe you're a person who's had friends trying to communicate to you this Jesus and you've been skeptical. You might have lots of reasons to be skeptical because of Christians and church and religion and all that kind of stuff, but I want to encourage you this morning, regardless of where you're at in your spiritual journey, are you willing to sit in front of Jesus and say, Jesus, I know now that you have the power and the authority to forgive the deepest need of my life and that's sin. And as much as I want you to fix my circumstances, I need you to heal and forgive my heart. Because as a believer in Christ, we know someday God's going to eliminate all the circumstances and afflictions that bother us. It doesn't matter whether it's paralysis or Alzheimer's, whether it's hip replacements or COVID. I can wait until I step face to face with Jesus for him to feel that, heal that if I know that you can forgive me of my sin. And if you haven't done that to, to date, I encourage you to talk to some of your friends who've been praying for you and walking with you and carrying you in prayer before a holy and loving God who is the only one who can forgive us of ultimately our greatest separation from him, and that is our sin. And then there's times, like the paralytic, that God is gracious and merciful and compassionate, and he changes our circumstances. Pray with me, if you will.